0: Have a Bible or a, <laughs> a device. <laughs> Open it up to the book of First Thessalonians, chapter five. First Thess five. It's been about three weeks since we've been in this book. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was at a memorial service for a dear brother that had gone to be with the Lord, and I was in Northern California. And then last week, obviously it was uh, Christmas, and we looked at the incarnation of Christ. That moment where God stepped out of eternity into time, took the form of a man to rescue us. So today, as we re-engage in this wonderful letter, it's my hope anyway that we're going to finish it. Uh, I think we will. So uh, Last time, three weeks ago, when we were looking at 1 Thessalonians, we were looking at family matters, Uh, the we talked about the nature of relationships in the church uh, as Paul launched into a series of exhortations. Exhortation meaning a strong encouragement as he exhorted the Thessalonian church as to how relationships in the church look, uh, how a church family should relate to one another. We looked at that and then also how we as a family should relate to those called to be leaders, leaders relating to those in the church. And also, how the church should relate to the Lord, uh, as we wrapped up with verses sixteen to eighteen in chapter five here last time. Uh, I'll be I'll pick it up there. In verse sixteen, uh, he says, "Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks." Now, these are separate exhortations, but they're all lumped together here. Uh, so, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So, today we're going to look at. Uh, the relationship between the church, corporately and individually, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Remember, now, Paul, just by way of background, uh, you know me, the context is everything. So we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to, there's a lot of different interpretations, a lot of verses here that we're going to look at that people pull out sort of favorite verses and all of that. But we're going to follow the context of this passage because it's all important that we understand what it is specifically that Paul wanted to communicate to the Thessalonian Christians, and by extension, what God wants to communicate to us. So, um, remember now he's in Corinth, uh, a city down in in a region of it's called Achaia, uh, southern Greece. He had been at Thessalonica in northern Greece, which is in Macedonia. Uh, But remember, he showed up there and he wasn't there very long. The Bible tells us he was there for three Sabbaths before trouble cropped up, before the Jews actually got envious, jealous uh, that he was drawing big crowds because there was a massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit when he and Silas and Timothy showed up in Thessalonica. And so he had had to leave town uh, after just a very short amount of time. The Jews stirred up trouble against him. Pretty soon the magistrates of the city got involved. Remember, they invaded the house of a guy named Jason, uh, had warrants out for their arrest. Jason had to post bail and Paul and and the guys left. They went to Berea and then Paul went on to Athens. But before he left, uh, he would give Timothy, this young guy that they had picked up along the way as they traveled across. Remember, this is Paul's second missionary journey And they had picked up Timothy in Lystra not long after he and Silas had set out from Antioch way over in Syria. And and as they had traveled across, now Timothy had evidently gained Paul's favor. He was a young disciple growing in the Lord. Paul found that he was trustworthy. And so Paul said, look, Timothy, I have to leave. They're after me. But we have this wonderful, beautiful work of God that is going on in this city. I need you to stay back and I want you to nurture and to care for the Christians there at Thessalonica. Remember, Thessalonica is a huge city, probably 200,000 people. It was the capital of that entire region, and by the time that Timothy came back and reported to Paul after he got to Corinth, uh the the word of God was going out throughout the entire region. I mean, the church had just exploded in a good way in that time. So As Paul now is reunited with Timothy and Silas, Timothy's been filling him in on the challenges, successes, problems in this vibrant young church. He's letting him know, look, here's what's going right. Here's what's not going right. And Paul then, because, and remember, we looked at it in this letter. He says, I wanted to get back to you in person. I tried several times, but Satan hindered me. The, the circumstances or evil men, he attributed it to the work of the enemy, hindering him, blocking him from getting back to disciple this young church in person. So what he opted to do instead was to write. That's why we have the advantage of being able to examine this letter that he wrote to them for that purpose. So um, what he does when he writes, he commends them. Uh, first of all, he commends them for their faith. For their endurance in the midst of suffering and persecution, they were going through it. There was a lot going on. He also affirms them in their willingness to live lives which were set apart from the pagan world that they had once been a part of. Now, the pagan world at that time, the Greek world was dark. We've looked at that in prior studies. I mean, it was really dark. Very, very, uh, uh, there was just garbage stuff going on. With the temple of prostitutes coming into town every night, and all of the, the the little pocket-sized deities that they carried around, and all of that, so the people had turned from that, and he was commending them, saying, "Look, you 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 are living set apart." And we looked at that extensively in one of our studies. So, also remember as we get into this that the central theme of this letter revolves around the coming of Christ. Uh, again, we've talked about that. Uh, we talked about how Paul, was. he went in, he did a deep dive there in chapter four and into chapter five about what we talk about as the rapture of the church, that time when the church will be taken out of here. Uh The Thessalonians, they were worried because some of them had died in the meantime. We don't know if they died as a result of persecution or from natural causes, but some of them were dying. And the Thessalonians, they were concerned like, I thought we were waiting for the Lord's return. What happened to the the ones that had died? And so he writes to them and he assures them. He says, look, they're in good shape. Those who have died before uh, will be the first ones. They actually get first, first place in the resurrection. They'll rise first. And those of us who are alive and remain will meet the Lord in the air. So he gives, goes into all of that. He also talks about the coming day of the Lord, that day when the wrath of God will be poured out on an unbelieving world. And so we've looked at that also as we've gone through this book. Now, giving them the reassurance that they who had gone before, those who had died, uh, was, it was very important. But we also saw at the same time that some had evidently gotten out of balance and what they had stopped working because they had expected the Lord's not imminent return, which is what we do today. But they expected His immediate return, and they were they sort of adopted this attitude of oh, like you know, why try? <laughs> Jesus is coming back. I'm just going to you know put my feet up and sit on my couch and wait. <laughs> and, and, and Paul says, "Say no, no, no. That's not how it works." Uh, in Second Thessalonians. And we'll look at it in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. He refers to them as idlers. That they were the ones that they had concluded that it was pointless to work. And they had actually become busybodies. We saw that in chapter 4 here. Uh, And Paul, as a result of that, he was very strong with them. He flat out commanded them. He said, look, and I'm going to paraphrase here. He said, mind your own business and get back to work. (laughs) Because you are a lousy witness for Christ. In your current posture. So within the young fellowship there were those who lacked maturity balance because they were ascribing aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, which were inconsistent with regard to the actual ministry of the Spirit. They were, you know, going around essentially saying, well, God told me and we'll talk about that more as we go. Uh, and they were things that were just flat wrong. And so Paul here is going to bring correction in that. So. Uh as a result of the people's overreach. Now, some were saying, well, you know, they, so they were overreaching as far as the ministry of the Holy Spirit goes. And as a result of that, um, we can assume that Timothy had reported back to Paul that some were underreaching as well. Some had backed off from the ministry of the Spirit altogether. And so Paul here, with great balance, he exhorts them to live expectantly. yes, we are to live expectantly. They were to live expectantly, to be vigilant, prepared for Jesus' return. That's the posture that we ought to have, while at the same time to live, he exhorts them to live responsibly, uh, and to understand that the actual ministry of the Holy Spirit is the lifeblood of the church. So both sides. See, again, he's bringing balance here in this section of this letter. Uh, And it's in that context with the same balance that we approach verses 19 and following here in 1 Thessalonians 5 this morning. So I'll pick it up in verse 19. He says, and now these are a series of very short verses. Each one is a standalone statement, but they also go together. and We'll get to that as we go. First of all, he says, do not quench the spirit in verse 19. Now, the Bible commonly portrays the Holy Spirit as a flame. If you remember on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, there were tongues of fire that, you know, with the Holy Spirit being poured out that appeared over the people's heads in that day. And we look at that as sort of metaphorical or something that we refer to the Holy Spirit as a flame. That's backed up here in the original language because the word quench here. The Greek word for that is the same word as extinguish. And so what he's saying, it's the same word that's used to extinguish a fire. So he's talking about hindering the operation of the Holy Spirit. And people who fail to submit to teaching of the word can quench or extinguish the work of the Spirit. And that was what was happening in Thessalonica. Also, not just the people, but those leaders who would usurp the ministry of the Spirit in the local church church, Essentially, we're throwing cold water on God's work in that congregation. Folks, that happens today. That happens in churches across our land presently. There are churches that they just represent. Uh, And I love our worship. We have very simple worship on purpose. Just a few instruments. Because the last thing I want us to do is to drift into having an expectation of entertainment. It's to worship God. It's not to be entertained. We want to be able to worship him in spirit and in truth, as the Bible declares. So what we want to do is essentially not throw cold water, not extinguish the spirit's work in our congregation. Now, the language here indicates, too, that the Thessalonians were to stop something that they were already doing. The tense here is in a continual tense. In in essence, what he's saying is stop continually putting out the spirit's fire. So how were they doing that? What was going on that caused Paul to write back and say, stop putting out the Spirit's fire? Verse 20, do not despise prophecies. So now here, prophecies refers to declaring the mind of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because individuals were abusing this gift, prophecy was being despised. Uh, again, that's the, the, they were underreaching. Overreaching and ascribing all kinds of crazy loony stuff to the Holy Spirit is one thing. But I'll tell you, I've been, to, I, I've had people come into our church here over the years and they'll say, well, that the last church I was at I, I just mentioned the Holy Spirit and I kind of got a response of oh, we don't talk about that here. It's like, what? How can you not? That's the lifeblood of the church. He is he is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. So anyway, that that gift was being, the gift of prophecy was being abused. People were claiming that they had, you know, some word or some angle on the Holy Spirit when it wasn't the case. And so Paul is saying, look, don't undershoot, don't despise prophecy. There is a way to go about it. So Remember, again, talking about the idlers, the, the, the idlers among the Thessalonians, they had likely spiritualized their idleness with prophecy. Oh, well, God told me that, that Jesus is coming back, Ex date, you know, these date setters and all that, it gets weird there too. So now as we get into second Thessalonians, we're going to see at the beginning of chapter two, that there were date setters, Paul specifically calls them out and end time speculators among the idlers who backed up their speculations with supposed prophetic authority. And and we'll get into that as we get into 2 Thessalonians. The point is that Paul didn't want the Thessalonians to smother, suppress the supernatural workings of the Spirit uh, in their midst by being insensitive to what God was doing. He's saying, look, you need to be sensitive to the working of God's Spirit. Now the word despise here means to treat with contempt. So what he's saying is not to treat prophetic utterances with contempt. Don't despise prophetic utterances. Remember for the Thessalonians, this was before the new Testament came about. It is a work in progress at this point. Things were being worked out in the church in the first century where they didn't have the new Testament to count on. They had the words of the prophets and the apostles. They were going around declaring a message from God. Now, Jesus had told his disciples, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He'll be in you and he'll teach you the things and bring to your, things, your mind things to, that I've taught you. So primarily what the apostles and prophets were doing when they ministered God's truth is they were forth telling, not foretelling, but forthtelling the word of God. You know, when I hear the word prophet or of someone prophesying, especially when I was younger in the Lord, My first inclination was that it meant that somebody was foretelling the future. I mean, when you think about prophet or prophecy, you think, well, that's something that's yet to happen. Primarily, here, the vast majority of the time, they were not declaring something that was going to take place in the future. Understand also for us that the canon, list, that's what canon means, that means the list of things that we count as Scripture, is complete. So, what I want to point out in that is I'm extremely wary of someone who purports to speak some future event in the name of God that doesn't line up with what we already have and what we find here in God's word when the gift is properly used it strengthens encourages and comforts the church in the present tense not in the future tense now I'm not diminishing the prophetic word there is there is a whole body of prophetic stuff that has gone on before. There are prophecies yet that have not yet been fulfilled. That's not what we're talking about. We're not specifically going into that this morning. Paul has covered that at at length in this letter. And so again, we don't minimize that, but what he's wanting to do is to bring correction when it comes to the everyday prophetic. In other words, the utterances that people were saying were coming from God via the Holy Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, Paul tells us, He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So Paul's point here is that prophecies must not be treated with contempt. Otherwise, the Holy Spirit who imparts the gift is dishonored and his work is extinguished. That's the point he's making here. So on the one hand, Paul's exhorting the believers in Thessalonica not to go overboard in believing every so-called prophetic word, that's not healthy. It's not healthy for us either. On the other hand, though, he's also exhorting them not to throw out the proverbial baby with the bathwater in ignoring the gift of prophecy altogether. That's not the solution. So the question then becomes, how does one achieve the balance spoken of here? Verse 21. He says he is unpacking this and we're just unpacking what he's saying as we go. And it totally makes sense when we follow the context of this passage. He says, test all things and hold fast what is good. Now you might read it this way. Put everything to the test. That's what he's saying here, which means as Christians, we must exercise discernment. We must discern what's being said. We're to examine everything that claims to be from God carefully now Jesus warned about this the apostles dealt with this from the very beginning there have been false prophets and false teachers all the, the old testament as well filled with examples of false prophets false teachers so think about the word false what does it mean essentially in this context what it, what it means is that they are lying They were not speaking the truth of God. They were making up their own messages and then claiming to be speaking for God, claiming to be speaking with the authority of the Holy Spirit. So in response to this, Paul says, test all things. Very logical, very simple. And we must test all things to distinguish between truth and error. And folks, I look out on the spiritual landscape in, in our country and around the world. And it's pretty messy out there in a lot of places. People are not discerning the spirits. People are not, they're taking, you know, heaping to themselves teachers according to their own desires. We are to examine these things and distinguish and discern between truth and error. So how do we do that today as a church? How do, I, how do I go about discerning what's true and what's not? I'm going to give you three things. First, test all things by holding them up to scripture and to see if they square with what is found in the Bible. Again, pretty simple. Is it in God's word? Is it in God's word in context? You know, we could I could take things and, and it, it makes me kind of bonkers when I see guys cherry picking scriptures and taking them out of context and try to make it say some weird thing. An uh, example I like to use is that if I wanted to just take things out of context, I could go to the Old Testament, the book of Psalms, and I could prove to you that God is a bird. I mean, he says he's going to take me under his wings, right? I mean, after all, I mean, only birds have wings. So, you know, see, and, and, and it's an extreme case and, uh, you know, yeah, it's humorous, but there are subtle things like that, that people try to pass off as God's word, or as spiritual discerning things that aren't. Be careful. Be careful. That's what Paul's getting at here with these people. And that's, I believe, by extension, what God wants to get at here with us. So we test things by holding them up against scripture to see if they square with that. Second thing is, and this is especially concerning those who are speaking, let's line them up with Jesus himself does what is being said, is it consistent with who Jesus was and is? And is it consistent with what Jesus taught? The ministry of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says in the gospel of John, he says, look, here's what the Holy Spirit will do. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's the first thing. The second thing he says, he will lead you into all truth. That's what we're doing this morning. That's what we do when we study God's word. We want to discern truth. I can't discern it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit within, illuminating God's word. The third thing he says is that he will glorify me. What does that mean? That he will glorify me. Well, when I see people out there doing what I, and I I sort of laughingly, but it's really not funny, call it the Holy Ghost talent show people out there doing all kinds of goofy things in the name of God, does it look like Jesus? Usually not. (laughs) Is it consistent with his person, with his character, with his nature, with his teachings? If it doesn't, if it's not, you've you've got to know, folks. Dismiss it. Let it go. Because when Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will glorify me, he's saying he will act like me. We want to have the mind of Christ. That he is, as a, as a person, the Holy Spirit himself, he doesn't glorify himself. And when you think about the word glorify, I look at it like a painting. If you had a painting on the wall, let's say I had a big light, you know, one of those museum-like things over the painting, and you could click the thing and turn it on turn it off. So I invited you in to see a new painting in my house, and, and so I take it, I pull the sheet off this thing and I click the light on. How would it be if you looked at me and you said, wow, what a beautiful light that's not what it's for. That light glorifies the painting. So our attention doesn't go to the Holy Spirit. Our attention goes to the one whom he illuminates, to the one whom he glorifies. And if he's glorifying Jesus, then his work is going to look like Jesus. If it doesn't, let it go. Are they representing Jesus correctly or are they misrepresenting him? Finally, the third thing here is we can test all things as Christians through what I would refer to as the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are times, and and I've I've certainly had this happen many, many times, uh, when I've been somewhere and somebody has been speaking, and and in my spirit, I just, I get this check. It's like I just get this something about that not right kind of a thing. And I have a sense that what's being said, or what's being represented, or what's being presented, is wrong, and it might be a very subtle thing. Well, especially when I was a younger Christian, uh, I would sense that, and then I'd go and I'd search out the Word, and I'd figure out what what was going on there. Was that from the Holy Spirit, or was it not? And when, and I'll tell you what, folks, I have learned. There might be times where my my noggin is saying one thing and and my spirit is saying another. I have learned to follow that check. I have learned to obey that when I get a check in my spirit, when I understand that there's something that's not consistent with what I know to be the ministry and the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, I check it out. Follow that check. If you get a check in your spirit, then you should make sure that you pay attention to that. Because it might sound good. There are times where it's very subtle. The enemy, he doesn't get up in the morning. You know, nobody gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to go out and be a heretic now. <laughs> yeah, that's not how it works. But there are heretics out there. And there are people out there who specifically would deceive for their own end. So whether it's intentional or unintentional, because there are times where people, maybe they picked up a you know, false doctrine along the way. Maybe they've been impressed or influenced by somebody who was off in an area or another. And so it may not be intentional. It might not be something that is, you know, there's a sinister end in it. But it might be somebody that's just untaught, unstable spiritually. Regardless, that thing must be dismissed. It must be dismissed. However, if it does agree with Scripture... That's where we're told here to hold on to that. Hold on to that which is true. Hold on to it, be thankful for it. In this case, they were being told rightly to await Christ's return. That was, Paul had given them very clear instructions. So head Timothy, we can assume that. Uh, but evidently the gift was being misused, abused, and predicting, and people were predicting specifics, uh, the specifics with regard to the coming of Christ. So here Paul's exhorting them to use their spiritual discernment so they don't throw out the good with the bad. Something that we need to do as well. Verse 22, he says, abstain from every form or appearance, that you could use that word as well, uh, of evil. So again, following the context here, the phrase form of evil stands in contrast to what Paul says in verse 20 when he says, hold fast to what is good. So we've got to be mindful here, folks, to avoid anything that smacks a bogus doctrine. And as you walk with the Lord, as you gain more experience, you know, because you're handling rightly the word of God, you're handling this word of truth, you know when something is wrong. And so we've got to be mindful of that. And, but we can't do that if we're not handling the word of God ourselves. And if we're not doing a thorough examination as we study God's word. Every form of evil here is not limited to external things. I want you to understand something here. Uh, Things which have the appearance of evil in others. We've got to recognize that evil outwardly is the product of an evil, fallen, sinful nature inwardly. That nature which each of us inherits from Adam. This is where it gets personal. You know, it's easy to look. I can look at things in your life, and I can see warts and cracks and flaws more easily in you than I can in me. It's difficult to do self-examination, honest self-examination. Very worthwhile endeavor, very difficult at time. As we look at the things which extinguish the Spirit's work, it's often much easier to see that process at work in someone else's life. That's the point. And I believe that was part of Paul's thought process here as he looks at the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, with regard to the process of sanctification in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians. What's the process of sanctification? What it means is purification. You could look at it as holification, being made holy, being conformed to the image of Christ. That is a sanctifying work. God is, he is, we are immediately and completely and thoroughly sanctified at the moment of our conversion, at the moment we get saved, and then we enter into this process where we are being sanctified as we go. And that process will continue until we go to be with the Lord. It's not something that's a one off. We're all in process, we're all broken in ways. Verse 23, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when he says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved, I believe that this order, the order that he puts it here, I believe it's inspired. Obviously, this is God's inspired word, and I believe specifically that that's the order that God intended. Now, he intends there to be a hierarchy within a redeemed person, ordered first with the spirit and then the soul and then finally with the body. Prior to our coming to faith in Christ, that hierarchy was vastly different. I have a chart here. I call it man or the inferior trinity. Now, we know that the superior trinity, that God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Talking about the Holy Spirit this morning. Now man, I believe here, he talks about the body, soul, or the soul, the spirit, soul, and body here in 1 Thessalonians, but that's not how we were born. We were born, according to God's word, spiritually dead. If you look at the left side of this chart here, you see that body is on top, the nature of Adam. We all have a sin nature. The soul, and I believe what, the, what our soul is, that's my me. That's who I am. That's my, what makes me a distinct person. My personality, my, and my quirks, and all of that. And then the spirit, you see it's in gray here on the left side, on the bottom, because we are born spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, I'll go ahead and read verses uh, 1 to 3 so that you understand. He says, "In you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So what he's talking about here is prior to conversion, prior to being regenerated, which is the impartation of life, We were dead in our trespasses and sins. The dominant nature in our lives is that nature of Adam. We are are captive to that nature, if you would. That that sin nature is what dominates unregenerate, unrepentant, unredeemed man. Dominated by the flesh. You could look at body there, you could interchange that with the flesh. Romans chapter 8 says, for to be carnally minded is death but or carnally means fleshly, to be fleshly minded, carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity, enmity means hostility against God, for it's not subject to the law of God, uh nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You can't help enough little ladies across the street, you can't do enough good deeds, you can't give enough at the office You cannot please God in your unregenerate state. You are dead, spiritually dead, dead men walking, dead women walking. However, when we're born again of the spirit, as you see here in the middle of this chart, something absolutely miraculous takes place. You want to talk about miracles? Look at what happens in your life and mine when we turn to Christ. No longer... Am I dominated by flesh? No longer am I dominated by the nature of Adam in my life. I am now dominated by the nature of Jesus. That's why I hunger to get to know him better. I want to understand his word more. I want to be conformed, as it says in Romans chapter 8, to the image of his son, to the image of Christ. That's God's will specifically for you and I. At the moment that I put my faith in Christ in the finished work of Christ, the work that he did at that cross. At the moment I believed and that I turned from my old life and I embraced him, I was regenerated. I was given life. I was brought to life in that sense. That's why we look at this and we see that the, the spirit now is the dominant nature in my life. Soul, the same thing. Notice here that body is sort of half gray and half kind of pinkish red there. And that's because what the Bible presents is that when I, when I was revived, when I was brought to life, when God regenerated me, Paul says, I died. He's talking about that old man, that there's a new man and an old man, a new woman and an old woman, and the old one died. Positionally, that became my lower nature, I still pack around this flesh. And I don't know about you, but it expresses itself on a fairly regular basis. I don't want that to be the case. But being honest, we're all in process. That's the process of sanctification that Paul is talking about here. The reason why that's part colored one way, part colored the other way is because we're all in process. We will all do battle against that lower nature of Adam the rest of the time we're on this earth. You're not going to get away from it, but you can have victory. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He says in Titus chapter 3, he says, We ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Other than that, things were pretty good, right? Yeah. He says, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration. That means the impartation of life, the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's a mouthful, but oh my goodness, I would love to rabbit trail on that. We do not have time. I I could unpack that for a month. No longer dominated by flesh, no no longer dominated by the nature of Adam, now dominated by spirit, the nature of Jesus via the Holy Spirit of God. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, the Apostle Paul says, I say then, with all that in mind, Being now that if you know Christ, if you belong to him, you're definitely living on the right side of this thing. And and the chart is just to represent things that are happening inside, obviously. But if you're living in that place, he says, walk in the spirit. And you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. You want to walk in the nature of Jesus? You're not going to fulfill the nature of Adam. Now, here's where the battle comes in. Here's where sanctification comes in. He says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you don't do the things that you wish. There is an inner battle. Folks, the, I, if you think about it, he says here, the, the, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit now being dominant in nature in my life, the spirit sitting on the throne of my heart, the flesh says, I want that position in your life. But the flesh has no power. The spirit brings power. So the flesh lusts against the spirit. The flesh wants position; The spirit brings power. And so there's this thing that happens inside of our hearts. He says, but if you're led of the spirit, you're not under the law. You're not going to have to worry about keeping the rules. Verse 24, he says uh, here, he says, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Notice in verse 23, he says, now may the God of peace sanctify you completely. What he doesn't say is, now may you sanctify yourself completely. This is not a self-help program. This isn't, God is never interested in, in fixing up my flesh. He is not here to improve that dead guy. He's here to say, that guy needs to die, that my spirit might control your life. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's how God sanctifies us. And he's faithful to do the work in my heart, transforming my life as he forms Christ in me, which the Bible tells me is my only hope for glory. So the question then becomes, what's my part? What do I do? Essentially, he says, just show up. Cooperate with the work of the Spirit. Following the context in this entire passage, it is his expressed will to perform a sanctifying work in each one of us which will go on for the rest of our time here. Understand that. We either cooperate with that work or we extinguish that work. Folks, there are only two choices. Serious stuff. We're either cooperative and obedient to the Spirit's promptings as a result of His grace being poured out on our lives, or if we are not, resulting in quenching, perhaps even grieving, the Spirit's sanctifying work. Now, there is a difference between quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. And and we do not have time to go into, like I said, this is not an exhaustive study on the ministry of the Spirit. But here, he's talking about don't quench the Spirit. Don't pour water on the work that he wants to do in your heart, in your life. To grieve the Holy Spirit, that's when I take an aggressive posture. I say, no, I don't care. I am going to go, and I'm going to do it my way. I don't... Regardless, that is to absolutely grieve the Holy Spirit because he wants to control our lives. When I quench the Spirit, it might be because, you know, the, the God is speaking in my heart and saying, you know, you need to apologize to your wife. And I say, not not now, not ever. I'm still mad. That's to quench the Spirit's work. Verse 25, he says, brethren, pray for us. I love that. So as a leader, Paul understood the value of prayer and fulfilling the ministry that God had given to he and his companions. And he's not afraid to ask for prayer. And, and, and folks, I'll tell you, I simply echo verse 25. Brethren and sisterin I guess, is that a word? Uh, pray for us. We don't just want your prayers. We covet them. We need them. There's a lot going on in our fellowship as we look as we are heading into a new year. I look at the things that God has done in this last year, and, and we're just doing what we've done all along. And I marvel. Uh, the Spirit of God is alive and well in this fellowship, and uh, there are wonderful things going on. And, and the Lord is giving us fresh vision on some things, and we'll, we'll talk about those more as we get into the new year. But I, 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 we covet your prayers myself, our elders, our leadership, covet your prayers. Um, We want to be able to fulfill the vision that we believe that God is giving us as a church, as a body. Verse 26, he says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. My response to that is probably not. (laughs) I don't think we'll be... I I, I have a brother, my brother in Seattle. I love him. He's like this... He kind of reminds me of a mobster or something. Uh, I mean, he's just this big gregarious guy. And whenever I see him, it it doesn't surprise me. He might come up to me and he'll grab me and he'll just plant a big kiss on my cheek. And I'm like, Bill, don't do that in public. You're, you know, you're embarrassing me. I don't want people to get the wrong idea. He's just a real loving guy. Well, we're not going to do that here. I think a holy hug or a holy handshake works really well. So anyway, um, That's all I got to say about that. Verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. Now this is important. As he's wrapping up this letter, he's saying, look, Paul knew, he knew extensively. He and Timothy, I would love to have been a fly on the wall when Timothy was unpacking all the things that were going on up there in Thessalonica. Paul, we need to, we really need to address this. We really need to look at that. Paul, this is what this guy's doing over here. Oh my goodness, they've got this. You know, they're all, people are all jacked up about that. You know, I I would love to hear that. All we hear is his response, but his response is so comprehensive, so thorough and so anointed of God's spirit. He's saying, look, I want you to make sure that everybody gets a look at this. I want you to be sure that everybody has an opportunity to receive the instruction that I'm giving here because it's really, really important for the health of this church. He wants it to be distributed widely. Remember, he wasn't able to get back to them in person, at least for the time being. Uh, So his instruction in this letter was invaluable for the spiritual health stability of the Thessalonian church. Interesting too, this letter is still being Read by all the Holy Brethren. Have you ever thought about it? I I don't, when Paul, when he's getting, when he's writing this letter, I don't think that there's any human way possible that he could have grasped that countless millions of people down through the ages would benefit from his writings. Hearts would be touched, enriched, changed, obviously through the power of the Holy Spirit because it's always by his spirit, through his word. As I mentioned, he will he's the one that leads us into truth. If you're getting anything out of this this morning, it's because the Holy Spirit is illuminating God's word to you. I marvel, though. I think about he's writing a letter to one church and how many people have benefited, ourselves included, as we've looked at this letter together over these months. Verse 28, he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. That ends the book, an interesting Nearly all of Paul's letters begin and end with the idea of grace. Understand, grace is God's unmerited favor. In other words, is God saying, I love you, not because you, and you may or may not be lovable, but I love you because of who I am. I love you because I choose to love you. Love is a choice. And that's the way that God approaches us. It's his It's the way he bestows his love acceptance on us because of who he is and because of what Jesus has done. Thinking about this too, and I want to make this personal. Grace also means that God likes us. It's easy for me to say I love that person, but God likes us. He pursues a relationship with us. And it carries with it the whole notion that we can get away of Uh, get away from the idea of of working for his love, but that we can simply receive his love, that we can enjoy the relationship that we have with him. He pursues fellowship with us. Many times over the years, I've asked people, so what were we created for? And you'd be surprised how many times somebody would say, well, we were created to to serve God. And my response is, no, 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 no. We were created to serve God. We were created for fellowship with God. We were created for a relationship with God. Out of that relationship, out of the richness of the fellowship we have with God, fruitful service flows. But that's never the means towards the relationship. As we wrap up here, I want to look at three things by way of application. The first is this test the spirits. Test the spirits. First John chapter 4, verse 1. John, an old man now, living in Ephesus. Uh, they had to help him in and out of the church there. Uh, extra biblical information said so they had to carry him in and out because he was so old he couldn't walk anymore. He's writing this letter uh, in First John. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Paul was seeing them in Thessalonica. We saw them in Jesus' day. We saw them in the rest of the writings of the apostles. I mean, the New Testament. in the New Testament alone, false teachers and false prophets are discussed from Matthew to Revelation. They're there. And they're here. If you look out on the spiritual landscape in our nation, in our community even... There is lots and loads of false teaching out there. Be careful. Be discerning. Understand the will of God for you is that you test the spirits. You see if they're from God. If they're not, run. A lot of junk out there. A lot of stuff out there. A lot of agendas out there. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon tells us repeatedly there's nothing new under the sun. In the New Testament alone, as I said, it's full of examples, of false teachers, false prophets. False prophets, false teachers abound. You've got to be unwavering in our commitment to the word of God and to studying his word. How do you insulate yourself from bad teaching? You understand what the good stuff is. You understand the truth. When Paul left Thessalonica, he traveled a short distance. I think it was only 15 or 20 miles away there is a smaller city called Berea. And he was there for a short time. And it, what happened was the, uh, the Jews, there was a small contingent of Jews in Thessalonica. It was a largely Gentile city. But the Jews got, they got upset. They got envious actually, because all of a sudden Paul and Silas and Timothy, they show up in Thessalonica. they got these huge crowds because the Holy Spirit's being poured out. Well, the Jews got upset, and so they stirred up the magistrates in the city, and that's when they came after him and caused all the problems. So they they left, and they went to Berea. Well, there, they were doing the work. They were beginning to, to put forth the gospel there, and the Jews in Thessalonica went, ah, we found out that he went next door. So they chased him down there, and they stirred up trouble there. That's when Paul had to leave. He went to Athens and then on to, to Corinth. The point is, while he was there a very short time... The Bereans became famous. We and uh, There are ministries named after them today. There are groups that, that and, and you'll hear me say from time to time, be like the Bereans. Why? Because we're told in the book of Acts that they studied the scriptures to see if the things that they were being taught were so. Folks, well, don't take my word for this stuff. Don't take anybody's word for it. Make sure those three things we talked about, does it square up with the person in the work of Jesus? Does it square up with God's word? And does it square up with your internal witness of the spirit? Be careful, be discerning, test the spirits. Second thing here is God told me to tell you. (laughs) You ever heard that? And fortunately, I don't deal with that much here because we're grounded in God's word and because we're, we stand on the word and, and, and people are maturing and they're understanding that that can be a, a real foolish practice. Folks, God is big enough to be able to tell me. He doesn't need you to tell me. God told me to tell you. I have in my notes here, well, God told me to tell you to knock it off. <laughs> but seriously... There are times when someone will take it upon themselves to presume to be the voice of God in another's life. And, you know, I I have grace, unless it's somebody that's doing that repeatedly. Generally, my answer will be, well, you know, when God tells me, then, you know, I'm good. Because I have the Holy Spirit too. There's a place also, I want to... There's an exception to this, because there's a place, and there's also prescribed formula in God's word, for dealing with an erring brother or sister. And there is a place where we go to that person. However, we need to be extremely careful in presuming to be God's mouthpiece in the life of another. Why? You're not God. You don't know the heart. I'll tell you what, there have been so many times in my life, my pastor used to tell me as a young pastor, 30, I don't know, 30 years ago, and he said, John, you don't have to say anything. John, just just lay back. Don't don't go charging out there thinking that you've got to have the answers and all that. And I've learned over time that I don't know the heart. I don't know what's going on in someone's life. I don't know what God is doing. And I can screw that up by thinking that I've got something I've got to feed into this thing. There's a point for that. But that's generally not the case. When I see the cracks or flaws or things going on in someone else's life, I understand we're all broken. When I raise my kids, I tell them, we're all broken. Some of us are more sophisticated. We wear our broken on the inside. Some of us are not as sophisticated and it kind of shows. You don't get to be the judge of that. That's for God to do the work. Yield to the work. And when I see that, It's not, it's not an instant thing for me to go up and try to fix them. It's not my job to fix you anyway. That's God's work. We looked at that. He's the one who sanctifies my place. If God shows me something like that, I'm just going to pray for you. I'm going to love you and I'm going to pray for you. Why? Because I'm broken too. You spend enough time with me, you'll see how I'm broken. We all have areas. We're all in this process together. We're all in this boat together, folks. Ain't nobody got a got a corner on the market of sanctification that I know of at this point. One of these days we'll get there and we'll throw off this flesh altogether. The curse will be removed and we'll be forever in the presence of the Lord and not have to worry about all this stuff. In the meantime, be careful. Finally, and this is probably the most important thing I wanted to bring out this morning it's a question. Are you tending the fire? Are you tending the fire of God in your life? You know, at times Christians can extinguish the flame of the spirit in their lives. I have, I'd imagine you have. The important thing is what we do about it. We do that by not yielding to the conviction of the spirit as he works in, in our hearts. And we. I'll tell you what, That fallen nature, that nature of Adam can rationalize anything. Be careful. Allow God to probe your heart. If you're rationalizing the area of sin, you need to stop it. You need to get right with the Lord. We can deceive ourselves. Now, I've heard too that the power of God in our lives, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives is like a freight train. My my stepfather, uh, he was an engineer for the Southern Pacific Railroad. He took me to work once. We derailed. That's a whole separate story. And it it was one of the worst days of my childhood. (laughs) Got locked in a room over the engines at about 140 degrees while they did an investigation. But one of the the things I noticed when he's like, he'd be driving that train and he had this big crank there and and, uh, that was the, the throttle on this thing. And we'd be 10 miles outside of Los Angeles and he would pull that throttle back and cut the power. It took a long time because of the kinetic energy in that thing for that train to come to a stop. And so it was, it was, it was amazing to me. I mean, you have a hundred car train and, and there's a lot of energy going on in that thing. I think that that's sometimes what happens with the Holy Spirit's work in our life. When you cut the power, you might coast for a long ways, but at some point it will stop. That's the Deception. Tell you what, people entertaining are already caught up in an area or an aspect of sin and things are just continuing to roll along pretty well. I'm talking about things that are concealed in our own hearts and our own lives. Don't be deceived. It will come to a stop. The Bible tells us, do not be deceived, that God is not mocked. That which a man sows, he will always also reap. Unless... You act on that conviction and you ask God to and you turn from it. I'll tell you what, if there are areas in your life where you're experiencing the conviction of God's spirit, I cannot encourage you enough. Tend the fire. Don't put it out. come back to bite you. It has me. Act on that conviction. Turn from that thing. Ask God to forgive and to restore. And I guarantee you on the basis of his word, he will. The result? That fire will burn brightly once more, be useful to the Lord, in a place of knowing that you're walking in the center of his will. Why? Because he loves us. Because he doesn't want bad things for us. He knows what's better for us than we do. And very often if we get caught up and we're toying with things that we ought not be, He will He's faithful, He'll get our attention. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that somehow it's not going to come out. At some point, that train will coast to a stop, and then you'll have to deal with it. Just tell my kids, there's a short way and a long way. The short way is to understand that God is doing something, and you 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 read something in his word, or the Spirit convicts you, and you say, okay, I got it. God, I'm I'm going for that thing. The long way is, well, I think I'm going to do it my way. <laughs> God will have his way with you. If you belong to him, he'll have his way with you one way or the other. Won't you think about going the short way? Honor the king. Glorify the Lord. Restore your usefulness. He's done that in me many times. And I pray that if you're in a place where there's some compromise going on, that you respond to his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you, Lord, for your grace. For the, the fact that you come to us, you beckon to us as children to come uh, under the shelter of our Father's hand. And Lord, if there's anyone in here this morning that is toying with or, or outright involved in an aspect of sin, Lord, if they're extinguishing the work of your Spirit in their lives, I pray that through that simple act of turning, that you would forgive, that you would restore, that you would empower, and that the fire of God would burn brightly in their life once more. Lord, we all stumble in many ways, and yet we know that your grace is sufficient for us, that you love us, and that you empower us, and that you desire good things in our lives. So Lord, help us to be people that cooperate with the work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Let our aim be to glorify our Father in heaven. That's my desire. I pray that's our desire this morning. We thank you, Father, for all of it. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.